As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome, everybody, to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me today to review some Americans abroad and domestic. We're changing it up this week. And to preview the USA's World Cup qualifier against El Salvador is a man who, as far as I know, has not been transferred today on deadline day. (laughs) It's Joe Lowry. Joe, have you been? Have you moved? Are you in France right now or some other random country? I have not moved. My agent okay. kind of phoned this window in, which is all a little right. bit unfortunate for me. But you know what? It's all right. It's all right. That's what I get for hiring my fictional brother as my agent. We did get a $150 million offer for Joe from the Scuffed podcast, but we, we felt like we, we were just going we to wait. We wanted to hold it down. Maybe we could bring in Joe and Kylian Mbappe next window, and it's going to be a whole big thing. <laughs> but until then, Joe, I appreciate your being here today to, as I said, preview uh, the start of World Cup qualifying. We're going to look fairly in-depth at El Salvador and then as in-depth at the U.S. men's national team, but we're going to start, as we do, with our Americans Abroad Weekend Review. As you pointed out uh, when we kind of did the plan for this one, we could talk about Americans in Major League Soccer, because there are plenty of those who do plenty of things, and we are going to do that. We have one American in particular we're going to talk about this week, Joe. Oh, yes, we do. Do you want to start there, Taylor? We're going to start in... The only downside of talking about Ricardo Pepe, spoiler alert, that's Mm -hmm. who we're going for, is that now we got to change the title of the show, you know? And it's we can't go for Americans Abroad anymore, so that's just some some backhand stuff here. But yeah, the Pepe Pepe conversation, I'm... I'm so pumped. That game that he had over the weekend against Austin FC, he scored a brace. He's up to 11 goals on the season. He's the highest scoring American currently in Major League Soccer. He's two goals away from Diego Fagundes' record for most goals scored by a teenager in a single MLS season. He is cranking right now, and he's worth changing the title of this show, Taylor. Yeah, I think we should maybe invite listeners to help us come up with a new title that isn't just Americans <laughs> Abroad Weekend Review. Because, like, the American Review, that feels vaguely nationalistic. I'm not entirely comfortable with that. <laughs> so, uh, yes, if people have suggestions, otherwise Joe and I can come up with it ourselves. But it is worth it to get to talk about Ricardo Pepe because Ricardo Pepe is in the U.S. squad but is also scoring goals and suddenly feels like he could be in that conversation for a starting number nine spot, Joe. Which is crazy, right? And I. Yeah. 
for me, I'm going to pump the brakes slightly because last week we talked That's about fair. when the That's roster fair. dropped. The <laughs> roster dropped, and I was a little bit hesitant about, you know, I'm probably going to start Sargent all three games, and I bring PFOC off the bench. But the more I think about it, the more I, I do think because the games are so close together and because the striker depth chart is still incredibly murky, there is a, a, a very strong chance that we see Pepe get some major minutes in this window, and that's awesome. It's not just that he's on the roster, and he is there partially because other guys are injured, right? Zardes isn't there specifically. DK isn't there. But I think he could actually do some damage. The more I watch him in MLS and the more I see him get time and, and become this really strong goal scorer in Major League Soccer, which is an okay league as far as the global game goes in terms of the amount of talent, the more I feel comfortable with him playing some solid minutes. And I think I, I'm still not fully there yet. I'm more comfortable with Sargent, probably still a bit more comfortable with PFOC. But this is a great time to get Pepe on the field, to get him a chance to develop and play in some important games. And I think he has a lot of skills that could really help the U.S. in some of these games. And here's why I love Joe Lowry, because I, I said that about like, like he's in contention for the number nine spot. And then as soon as I said it, as Joe started to speak, I thought, is he though? I'm not sure he is. He's definitely in contention to be in the squad because he made it. I don't know how many minutes he's going to get to your point, Joe, but I also agree with you that I am more comfortable with him getting those minutes than I was even when we had that conversation about the roster, because at the time it felt like definitely felt like a planned call up. Like it was something it wasn't just a Ooh, Mexico might be interested. We've got to one up them and get him in there. It seemed like it was a logical extension of what he has done and what he has been doing. But then watching his game this weekend, and this is where I should say, I do not mean this to sound as much like shade as it's going to, but admittedly against Austin FC, but still uh, for him to, just cause chaos and problems all over the place and to be such a physical presence but then such a mobile presence and then a clever finisher and making clever runs and getting on the end of crosses and battling for 50 50s there's just a lot there that i can picture greg berhalter watching and just sort of nodding and taking notes yeah, the the off-ball movement in this game from Pepe was so, so, so good. And the caveat there, the logical caveat is it is Austin. And the way they defended in this game, not not so good. There was a lot of space in between the lines. There was a lot of space in behind. Pepe's second goal, it comes in the 40th minute. It comes after Zan Komic, Austin's left back, is just so high up the field and Austin lose the, lose the ball. And Pepe can just make an off-ball run into that right channel, Austin's left, and get on the ball and dribble into the box almost untouched. So there is a bit of a disclaimer here. That said, Pepe's movement and the way that he manipulates defenders and the way that he ditched defenders in the box on his first goal to then stay a little bit higher and get the ball and finish towards the top of the box with just a lovely finish to the bottom corner. These are things that Pepe doesn't just do against Austin. He does them in other games too, and that's the part that encourages me. We're seeing it more so in a game like this where he's up against maybe a little bit weaker competition defensively. But it has been a theme throughout this entire season, and that's what you want to see from an 18-year-old striker. And we are, it's a strange show because normally we're just talking about what the Americans did or what their performance was, good or bad. Here we're also looking at it with a lens towards what we expect to see with the national team in this break in the in World Cup qualifying. Joe, for people who like have maybe not watched as much U.S. national team of late or there's just been a million games, all the leagues have started, goldfish brains exist. Uh, what do you think, if you're describing to somebody who hasn't seen the U.S., what do you think Burhalter wants that number nine to be? What are some of the qualities you think he most looks for and how many of them do you think fit with Pepe's overall game? 
The thing that Berhalter talks about most with his number nine, at least the thing I've heard him talk about most, is their movement in the penalty box. And he, he doesn't harp on Josh Sargent about this, but he talks about this in relation to Josh Sargent a lot, talking about how Sargent can be more active in the penalty box and how that nine needs to score goals. That's something that Pepe does. His movement, like I mentioned, is so, so good. There's another moment in this game against Austin where Pepe just uh, kind of manipulates Nick Lima, Austin's right back in this game, and he, he scoops him, he, he scoots him around and shakes him up a little bit in the box and makes a nice run to the near post, the front post, as Dallas had the ball on the right wing. And he doesn't end up finishing, but it's a great bit of movement. Pepe has those instincts and, and the, the awareness in the box to make those runs. The other things that the Brawler wants from that nine, he, ideally that player presses, and I don't know how strong of a presser Pepe is in terms of a high press, because Dallas don't high press a ton in Major League Soccer. So that's a bit of a question for me. But otherwise, he, he wants that player to drop in sometimes, but I think he's become more flexible, Berhalter has, with who that nine is and playing to that nine's strengths. Like if it's Jesus Ferreira starting a January camp game, he's going to drop in, right? Because it's going to be a great chance to overload the midfield. Ferreira's really clean on the ball. But if it's DK, we're not going to see quite as much of that. We're going to see more traditional hold-up play, less false nine play. So if Pepe's playing that nine spot, and, and kind of the same for Sargent and Pifak, to be honest, I think it's going to be a more traditional classic number nine in possession where they are an outlet, they can play with the ball at their feet, they can drop in, but mostly they're staying high and they're getting ready to move and activate in the penalty box. And I think those are things that Pepe can do pretty well at this point. Not flawlessly, but but pretty well. What are the things you think he maybe can't do as well or what could be the things that limit his impact uh, at least this season in Major League Soccer, but then also with the national team when it comes to World Cup qualifying? I think he can improve as a passer on the ball and and some of those sequences come after he does drop in a little bit and then turns and faces forward. He's not the best point guard in transition, right? And that's not really been his game in the past at youth level. And it still doesn't really have to be his game with Dallas. But as he tries to become a more complete nine, that's one thing. And then maybe the more important thing, I talked about being a a more of a classic nine and holding the ball up. Pepe has some really good hold-up moments. He had a great one in this game on Romagna, one of Austin's center backs in the 55th minute. Held him off really well, and that allowed uh, Ferreira to then break forward, and Pepe found him with a nice little touch. But for every one of those that I see, I feel like there's a moment where he's getting bodied off the ball. The 20th minute, he does get bodied off the ball in this game against Austin. And the referee does give him a foul, but it was a 50-50 call in my view. And so there are moments where Pepe just doesn't have the build yet. He's tall and he's a bit lanky and is a little bit slight. He's, he's a big dude in some ways, but he's not built yeah. yet. And I think as he develops into his frame, he will become a much better hold-up player. Just physically, he's not quite there yet. Dude, that's, that's really well said. He, he is... That player who, maybe not like this offseason, maybe not next year, but there will come that offseason when he shows up for whatever team he's playing for and he's added those 10 to 15 pounds of muscle. Yeah. And suddenly it's a different entity like that you have to deal with. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> suddenly he's got to like upgrade the size of his sleeves because they're a little bit too tight. Uh, yeah, I'd be fine with that. Joe, another question I have that's a slightly stranger one, but I think about some of the young players that we have in this pool, not necessarily on this roster, but Gio Reyna, I've talked plenty about his sort of intensity, how he doesn't really hide his frustration if the past doesn't come or if he thinks something else should have happened in the moment. You will see him get frustrated. You'll see him demand the ball. And I think Matthew Hoppe especially is a player like that. And there was uh, a story, I can't remember if it was in the Washington Post or elsewhere, 
about Hoppy having words with Burhalter when he was subbed off, and Burhalter did not like that. Hoppy had a uh, shirt printed with Burhalter's yeah, face on it, yeah. and like the kind of meme. And I think trying to to just show like, hey, like no hard feelings. And he talked publicly about how much he values Burhalter and what he's meant to him as a player. But there is still that like just like ruthless mentality with those two players. Do you feel like Pepe is in that group? Because watching him this weekend. You can still see the kid at him. You can still see the joy and enthusiasm of goals scored. You can always see that with players. But there is a, a sort of veteran steel to him of a player who's since a very, not very young age, but, it, you know, since early teens has been playing against fully grown adult men and I feel like has learned how to handle that. And so I see some of that fight, some of that spirit, some of that like not, not backing down mentality to him. And I'm wondering how much of that you see in him. I think he's savvy. Right. I love okay. I love you mentioning there, Taylor, his experience against adults, which has been happening for yep. a long time now, dating yes, back to it actually probably wasn't that long ago. But USL League One, right, with North Te- North Texas. I think he's savvy. I don't know how fiery he is. Because that's the word I would use to describe Hoppy and, and yeah, Reina. Yeah, that's fair. They're fiery dudes, especially Hoppy. Reina is kind of in his own little world, I guess, in a lot of ways. But Pepe to me feels a little bit like like a little bit more of a calm character, a little cooler, but still willing to get aggressive and willing to be a strong presence. I I'm going to pay more attention to that because I want to I want to actually now just put every national team player into a category. I don't know how we're going to do that. I don't know that we're qualified to do that, but we can have the Weston McKinney goofball category. We can have the Tyler Adams quiet leader category, although he's getting a little bit more vocal. Pepe, yes, I think, is. is Pepe, I think, is a little bit outside the Reina Hoppy stratosphere. I, I, I can see that one. I would go with another like weird analogy then that there are moments when I see like the shark in him and you can just yeah. see that he sense blood in the water. And it's yeah, like, that's oh, a he good is going to chase that person down and chase that person down and then chase that person down. And sometimes that can look like, oh, he's just running around, chicken with the head cut off, doesn't really have a and And instead with him, it tends to be he puts somebody under pressure and there's a back pass and then he correctly pursues that, but from a good angle to force another back pass or another awkward pass. And it just seems like, once he senses there's an opportunity here to create an imbalance or to create uncertainty, he's going to do that. So regardless of what it is, whatever the analogy is, I think I just watching this game against Austin this weekend and in other games in the past going back several years, I'm just excited for how much growth we've seen in him, but also how much consistency I feel like we've seen in him. Every player is going to have downturns in form and, and uh, big moments and purple patches where they're scoring goals. But I feel like Ricardo Pepe just continues to develop in ways that make me excited. And I struggle to think of like forwards who are, who are similarly built and similarly experienced at his age that the U.S. has had at its disposal. I'm sure there are names out there in, in a couple categories, but not in all of the categories. I feel like now I'm going back into way overhyping him. This no, is a player well, who might not start a single game, might only get a few minutes, but I think I'm just still pretty excited for another option at the number nine spot. Yeah, that's that's the perfect way to phrase it. This is this is huge, right? And I hope I didn't downplay that too much in our in our first you know intro no. conversation about this. This is a big deal for the U.S. men's national team. And we talked a bit about this last week, but this is the nine prospect that the U.S. has been waiting for. You know, we thought it might be Sargent, and it still might be. It's early, still a young player. But Pepe is a really strong prospect, and he's already a good player in Major League Soccer at 18 years old. The nine position has been a question mark for so long, and it will continue to be a question mark probably until after the 2022 World Cup. It's probably going to be in that 2026 cycle where we before we really get a good idea of who the every game nine is when healthy. But Pepe could be that guy, and he could be really, really good at being that guy. 
I am so pumped to watch him, hopefully in this window. If not, then beyond if he doesn't get on the field. I think he'll play some, and I'm excited to just eat up every minute because this is the player that the U.S. men's national team has been waiting for, or at least he has a good chance to be that player, and that is hugely exciting, Taylor. I'm debating, yes, I do want to have this conversation now (laughs) Uh, because like, we haven't talked much about qualifying and the start of qualifying specifically what happened the last time we tried to qualify for a world cup Hmm. and i don't think that should be dismissed but i am also not the type of personality that needs to go back and sort of revisit that unpleasantness and revisit how unpleasant that was and and instead i think i can just remember that there's an element of don't be overly confident don't be arrogant don't just expect that it's our birthright to be at the world cup that you got to work you got to play your hearts out you got to qualify But with that in mind, I think I'm also really excited for this qualifying to begin. I'm certainly nervous, certainly apprehensive. But And even if we don't have all of our starting players or the best players in the best spots that we would want them to be, and we do have injuries in this camp, and we have some players who might not be able to play every game or the full 90 in every game, it's still, it's just a very exciting time for the U.S. national team because, again, jumping around, like I'm going to talk about Gianluca Busio in a little bit. And I just found myself remembering when Michael Bradley went to Hellas Verona and then to Roma and how it felt like this watershed, earth-shattering moment that like we were watching every single Verona game to see what Michael Bradley would do. And now we have so many Americans in so many leagues and so many different teams of different qualities and calibers that to some extent, it's like it's just a thing that I think is easy to forget where we were four, five, six years ago. And so... Again, like there's reasons to be nervous. There are reasons to debate who should start and what we should do and how we should have done this if things don't go well. But fundamentally, I just want to keep reiterating how exciting it is to be a fan of this U.S. team right now. So much has changed, man. That 2017, that 2017 team that went to Cuba, that was not a good team, right? That was not a team full of players that are, that are close to the level of this group. And like you said, Taylor, that does not mean the World Cup qualifying is going to be easy. It is going to be really, really, really hard. Like, like teams just don't win a whole lot away in CONCACAF. Uh, ben Wright tweeted out earlier today as we're recording on Tuesday that of the 179 hex matches from 1998 on, only 33%, uh, only th- 33 of them, excuse me, 18.4% have been won by the visitor. So winning away in CONCACAF is hard. Getting results in CONCACAF is hard. But this is different. This is a different opportunity. It's a much different group of players, a much better group of players. I I can't wait for Thursday. I can't wait for Sunday. I can't wait for Wednesday. I don't know how these games are going to go, but I certainly feel a lot better about any of these games than I did about pretty much any game in that last World Cup qualifying cycle. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think with that in mind, like whereas with Gold Cup group stage, if the U.S. played El Salvador and beat them 1-0, I think people would be happy there was a win, but it would also be a conversation about like, well, like it's El Salvador. Shouldn't we be beating beating them by more? Should it be more comfortable? This player didn't. And like, I think when it comes to World Cup qualifying, to your point, that 18% is a very small number. And so if the U.S. do go to El Salvador to start World Cup qualifying and get a win, if they got like a 2-0 win, that would be a statement victory even if it doesn't feel like that momentous of a result and it is an aspect of qualifying in CONCACAF where you know I have like a Greek friend who always makes fun of me because it's like oh you beat the mighty minnows of blank whereas his country is playing a bunch of European powerhouses I understand that it's all relative but it's also the case that they don't understand what it's like to have to go to Central America and play these games and uh, Scuffed gets their second reference of the episode here they were posting different 
uh, clips or full matches from World Cup qualifying, including I think specifically when the U.S. last went to El Salvador in 2009, I think it was, and just how raucous that atmosphere is, how intense it is, how much pressure there is on those players, both to get the result because it's qualifying, but also just with a very hostile crowd and how big of an impact that can have. It, it, it takes a lot, I think. And we've got a lot of veteran players, some of whom who have been here before and some of whom have grown up, like knowing that this is what they were going to experience. But it'll be fascinating to see how they respond to it. We're going to talk again more about El Salvador, more about the U.S. later on. Joe, anything else we should say about Ricardo Pepe right now? Or should we talk about some other Americans who did things this weekend? Pepe rocks a cowboy hat. That's the there only thing go. I had left. He can rock that <laughs> cowboy hat. Taylor, where do we want to go next? I think we should take a break, take a breather, regroup, and then we'll be back to talk about some Americans, and we'll talk about El Salvador as well. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. All right, Joe Lowry, let's talk Americans abroad. I think last week I I, I forced you to begin. This week <laughs> I, I, I will I will go ahead and take the lead on the first one. And I'll talk about Gianluca Busio, a player that I already mentioned earlier. Uh, I watched his game for Venezia, their 3-0 loss for Udinese. I'm a little worried, Joe Lowry. I'm a little bit worried for a variety of different reasons. Mostly I'm worried about Venezia staying up long term, though this is the only game I have watched of theirs. I saw some things. I saw some worrying signs. And Gianluca Busio is part of that, but he is not the only part of that. Yeah, and that's important to say because I think we're going to talk about some negative Busio things because negative Busio things happened. Venezia is also just not a good team. Like, I watched yeah. their game, I think it was last week or maybe the week before, for Tanner Testament, who was playing a similar role to what Busio played in this game over the weekend, or on Friday, excuse me. And they're they're not especially strong. I think they're going to have a hard time in Syria, which is not a good thing, really, for these Americans who have gone over there. I'm curious to see how their season is going to go. But it is a nice baseline level comfort to know that Busio is not the only player out there making some mistakes. And if we do have listeners who are more familiar with Venezia than I, like I welcome their thoughts on this. But from what I saw, and this is a small sample size, they felt to me similar to, I got stick for bringing this up previously from Fulham fans who did not love it. But that Fulham team that came up and sort of their approach was, we're going to play the exact same way we did when we tore the championship apart and we will be fine. When you move up to that next level, you cannot be as open. You cannot play the same way you did in the lower division and expect things to go the way they did. And I see elements of that here with Venezia because Busio is playing centrally. And in this game, I would say their base shape was a 4-1-2-3. And he was that one. And what that meant was that if you had that front three who would, the the wide attackers would sort of spread out, then your two 
uh, like other more attacking central midfielders would push high and you'd almost have a front five at times. But that meant you had one midfielder, Jean-Luc Abusio, sort of there trying to put up, put out any counterattacks, snuff out any threats before they developed. And that is a lot of ground for him to cover, a lot of people to pay attention to while still trying to track the ball and his positioning. And there were moments when I think he will look bad on the highlights if you only see the end of the play when he seems to be out of position or is trying to chase somebody and desperately trying to make up ground. It looks like he's been out of position. He's been outplayed. A lot of the time it is him in a 1v3 and he is trying to sure. do the best he can to kind of split the difference. So I do think he is put in a difficult position and it's worth noting he – I don't know if he played the whole game, but he was in there until like the 92nd minute. So pretty much played the whole game, if not the whole game. And I do think that if he had been a player that the, the manager thought like this guy cannot do it, this guy is the problem. He doesn't last that whole game and he does make mistakes, some of them more costly than others. But I think maybe there's an element of this is a young kid coming in. We're asking him to do something new for us or new for him. And so we got to give him some time to see if he can do it. And I think there were positives to this game, Joe. There were also some negatives that I sent you. Uh, what what did you make of the clips I sent you? Oh, they're bad, man. <laughs> and I think I think we can separate these two things. Yeah. I think real quick, I think we can separate the the Nizia errors and some of the mm-hmm. struggles that Busio went through because of the role he was playing for a bad team. Like like playing the number six is a hard job, no matter what. Mm-hmm. Playing as that that single pivot in a four three three, that four one two three, it's hard. It's hard for any team. It's really hard for a bad team because you are going to be hung out to dry a lot. And when your team is just under fire a lot in a game like like Venezia were then your life is extremely challenging. So there are situations that Busio's put in that aren't his fault. He didn't create those situations. He's the one left to clean up the mess, right? Like if I dump my pasta out on the floor and then I make you clean it up, Taylor. Like that's not your fault. You didn't do that, right? Maybe that came a bit too close to home with, with a baby in your house now. I don't know. But we can separate those things from the sloppy turnovers, from yeah. the losing the ball, from the not tracking your runner in a situation where that is your job. And those are all things that happened in those clips that you sent. There are also some of those things floating around on Twitter as well, Friday afternoon. Those things Buzio needs to improve. And it's it's game one. I don't want to be you know overly reactionary here. But those are things that he needs to get better at if he wants to play in Syria. Yeah, agree entirely. And to extend it further, like uh, to the spaghetti analogy, if you're like if the baby is dropping all the spaghetti on the floor, no, Gianluca Buzio did not do that. And if you're asking him to clean it up, then what he has to do is learn how to clean it up quickly and effectively and not use a mop. And there are times in this game when he did sort of try to use a mop when the situation didn't call for it. And so what I mean by that is that when he is kind of isolated, if he doesn't have people around him, he either has to play way faster and be tidier on the ball, or he has to get stuck in and learn how to handle challenges and he is smaller in stature at present maybe that will change but you can still be small and fight and be tenacious ask Gennaro Gattuso for example if he wants that to be his game but I think he was trying to kind of hold the ball up but wasn't going into things as physically as that requires but then also trying to keep the ball moving but taking an extra touch or two and so two of the moments I sent Joe one was immediate, immediately after Venezia uh, go one nil down and he's not really at fault there he's around but again he's trying to mark two different people at once neither of whom scores the goal so I'm not going to blame him for that what I will say is immediately from kickoff the ball goes back it goes out wide it goes back to Busio and he turns and has a sloppy touch and then gets bodied off the ball and loses 
it. And when your team is just conceded and you are that number six, there's an element of like, you have to be the one to just keep the ball moving and be calm and, and just clean it up. Like get the spaghetti into the trash, clean the floor. Away we go. Don't try to like mop it or use a snow shovel or whatever. Like that might be a bit over overkill because it leads to uncertainty. And that's what happens here. As soon as he has that miscontrol, if you're his teammate, it just it's going to limit what you're going to try to do. Maybe you don't step forward as aggressively. Maybe you don't make that run down the, the channel because we might lose the ball and now I've got to hustle back. And so you need him to be that calming presence. And I think it's bookended by the fact that the third goal is the goalkeeper rolling the ball to him. He tries to turn, has a heavy touch, gets bodied off. And then after a few passes and a shot that's saved, the rebound is scored. And that one is his fault. And that is where you cannot cough the ball up. They're already 2-0 down. It's in injury time. So it's not like they were fighting for a comeback or that cost them the game. But it could have. And it might in the future. And that's where he has to develop. And again, this is a very young player who is in a new league, in a new country, figuring things out as a teenager, but has to kind of show us that he can improve from week to week so that next week, maybe it is tidier. Maybe he rides a challenge more. Maybe he doesn't get into foot races. I don't think that's his skill set either. And we see him changing up his game to suit his strengths and limit his vulnerabilities. It's funny because Busio's worst moments in this game, those heavy touches in bad spots that you're talking about, I actually think those haven't really been weaknesses of his in the past. And that's why I want to be very sure to give him Mm -hmm. time and to see what he does next week. I'm actually much more concerned about his athletic ability on a long-term level than I am about his technical ability in tight spaces or any of that stuff. He's not flawless in tight spaces and we we clearly saw that on Friday, but he's, I, I wouldn't label him as being bad at that. And I wouldn't have criticized that specifically coming out of SKC. It is more about his straight line running. Can he, cover enough ground in those situations as a six? Can he read the game quick enough? Because you don't have to necessarily be an elite athlete or have a crazy top speed to play that spot well. You have to be really smart with how you position yourself. Busio is still new to that six spot, but those are much bigger concerns of mine than the passing. So I'm curious to see one, two, three, four, five, you know, half a season from now, however long, I'm curious to see what issues are still there for Busio, what's not there. Because if I was a betting man, I'd kind of bet on these sloppy turnovers fading and maybe some of his athletic issues being a bit being exposed a bit more. Yeah, and, and that's and that is why we do this show. And every time we do an episode where we're critical of a player that people like or a team that people like, we do get a few comments about how we're being harsh and we gotta remember it's a teenager and, and we gotta give them time to grow. And I just want to like be clear that that is literally the purpose of doing this show. So we can look at what he did and and identify this seems to be a weakness. This seems to be a strength. This seems to be a thing he can't do as well. This guy can't use his left foot, but only ever uses his right foot. And then maybe a month later, oh, he started crossing with his left. And you can track the development, which is important when you're monitoring different players and seeing just how they're growing, how their team is evolving, but also from a U.S. perspective with the national team. I think so often we hear like, why know this guy? Why know that guy when they're not included in the roster? And the thing I enjoy about these types of shows is that we can look at performances and say, Burhalter wants a player who does this. He wants a player who won't do this. Right now, this player isn't as good at that and keeps doing this. So that's why he's not involved. And, and the more basically succinct information we're able to provide, and that is not a word that is often used to describe me, succinct. Uh, but I think the more that we can do that, the easier it is to kind of understand these players and what they're doing and how they're developing. But never are we 
doing this to then say like, yep, he's bad. He's never going to make it. Let's move on. Like there is always room for improvement. And that's why I like to point out the vulnerabilities and the uh, opportunities for growth is maybe the more positive way to put it, Joe. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of Busio throughout the mm-hmm. season. I'm excited to get to watch more Serie A and to have a reason to watch more Serie A. I'm excited to see if Venezia can stay up. I mean, there's lots of compelling storylines here. I think it's going to be a – well, I was going to say I think it's going to be a fun year. I don't know if it's going to be a fun year on the field for Busio, off the field certainly. But I'm looking forward to seeing how he develops. Like you said, that is the purpose of this show. And also if they develop around him, to put a final yeah. point on it. That like yeah. if we see them having those more advanced midfielders – dropping a little bit deeper, staying closer to him, but he stays in the lineup and he stays that central player or maybe becomes one of those other midfielders. The point is that like to see the team adjust to him or to see him adjust to the team, either way, we're seeing how important he is to the squad or how important his development is to that team. But either way, we see kind of what happens to him over the course of the season and ideally in a useful way both for ourselves and the listeners. So on that note, Joe, I feel like I've talked plenty about Gianluca Busio and the philosophy behind this episode. Uh, why don't you talk about an American who did stuff this weekend? Okay, let's stick in central midfield. I'm going to move a little bit higher up the field, and we're also staying in Italy. That would have been a logical transition there. I forgot where we were going here. We're talking Weston McKenney, folks, because he go. might not be in Italy for all that much longer. I don't know what's going on with Weston McKinney right now. Taylor, before we talk about what he did in this game, Juve had a 1-0 loss to Empoli on Saturday with Weston McKenney playing in central midfield. I want to talk about what's going on with him. Where is he going to be going? Sky Sports reported earlier today, as we're recording again on Tuesday, that Burnley have been offered a chance to sign McKenney on loan. Crazy times in Weston McKenney's world right now. I don't, I don't know where he's going to end up, Taylor Rockwell. Nor do I, my friend. Uh, I think my, my guess would be that he ends up with Juve just because it yeah. doesn't seem like anything has clearly happened. And I don't fully know exactly when certain transfer windows close, but I also know that once one or two of them start to close, it means that those clubs can't then buy players, so then they're not going to sell them even if other windows are open. So I I, I basically approached this window just assuming, like, yeah, Juve made his deal permanent this summer, technically speaking. He is now a Juve player. He will be there long term. And then you see the rumor here, the rumor there, oh, maybe Spurs want him in a swap deal, and maybe there's another club interested, and suddenly Burnley. And and it does start to feel a little bit, I said this on Twitter, like like where there's smoke, there's fire. And it and then there were reports that people were at Juve were unhappy with his fitness and with his diet and the way he trains and with maybe the way he embraces the nightlife. Uh, and and it starts to seem like maybe there is some discontent there. Maybe there's a willingness to move him on. Uh, Christine Coupo, friend of the show, pointed out that it might also just be that he is an asset, that they could move on for money, and he's one of the few players that does present an opportunity to be moved on for a, a sizable profit. So maybe that's part of it where some of those rumors for, were coming from. But it, it felt to me like Juve trying to float the idea that he could be available without saying he is available, but also building a case for why he's available, but not necessarily like slamming him as a player. It's a very fine line that I feel like was trying to be walked. I think also his agents were maybe putting out some feelers, not sure what to make of that one either. So even if he stays at Juventus, it is a more confusing situation than I would have expected it to be. Yeah, Juve are playing 4D chess right now with this transfer <laughs> situation. If if uh, Weston McKinney's agent floated out Burnley to Sky Sports, Weston mm-hmm. McKinney needs a new agent. 
Um, <laughs> I don't know exactly what happened there. It's a crazy situation. I agree he with you. He loves him, I don't Sean Dyche, man. I, he must. He loves him a 4-4-2 low block. If, <laughs> which is fine. You know, I actually think legitimately Weston McKinney will be very good for Burnley. Like very, very good. It just feels so anticlimactic if this happens, which again, I don't think is all that likely. If it happens, going from Schalke to Juve to Burnley just hurts so much worse than going from Schalke to Burnley. Or, or Schalke to Southampton, which was the big report back last summer, I guess it would have been. It's crazy. And I, I agree. I don't think you, I don't think McKenney's likely to move, but it is kind of a bizarre situation. And, and his role on Sunday, uh, over the weekend on Saturday, excuse me, was a little bit strange. I think he played in a spot that I've, that I've never seen him play before for Juventus. He played as a 10 in a 4-4-2 diamond in that midfield. So he was the tip of the diamond doing a lot of running, doing things that he's good at. Um, but not getting involved a whole lot. The the one moment I sent you from McKenney in this game that I thought he looked really sharp was a bit of combination play with Paulo Dybala. It was Dybala and Chiesa up top and then McKenney as the 10. So a little bit of some strange personnel from uh, Allegri here. But the ball comes to Dybala after Juve have won it in their own half. And Dybala chests it down and then gets it to McKenney. And McKenney plays this little right-footed, hard to tell if it's a sole roll or if it's just the side of his right foot, but he just lays it off right back to Dybala. And it's a lovely bit of combination. Then McKenney break, breaks forward and makes a run into the attacking half. Doesn't end up getting back on the ball. But you can see how skillful he is in that moment. Other than that, there wasn't a lot of real meaningful involvement from McKenney here. And I can understand why Allegri took him off at halftime. It's not that McKenney did anything wrong necessarily, but Juve needed a goal. It made sense to bring Morata on. And that's the player who came on for McKenney. They needed more attacking players, and I think that could end up being McKenney's role. It's just this fill-in rotation player who can bring some energy, cover some ground, but he's not going to be this uber-creative midfielder outside of individual moments like that. I think he's in for a similar season in some ways, maybe a little less impactful offensively. He's in for a similar season to what he had last year under Pirlo, even with a different manager at Juve this year. So we've been talking about this with Weston McKenney since his Schalke days, that he seems to not necessarily this is like his skill set or the way he wants it to be but it seems like the the clubs he has played for the situations those clubs have been in he ends up being uh, a jack of all trades master of none and and it seems like that is once again where he's going to be that he might be a number 10 he might be a number 8 maybe they'll try him at number 6 maybe they'll use him as a right back but he'll be the utility man for Juve and that's not necessarily a bad thing but it also means he's not developing certain particular skill sets that might be useful to say playing centrally for the United States or for any future clubs like does that potentially disappoint you if he is a utility player or or is it sort of still the he's playing for Juve I don't care because I think I'm kind of in that second group strange as it might seem yeah, I'm mostly in that second group. I'd be lying, though, if I said it wasn't a little bit of a bummer that we don't get to see Weston McKenney as half of a double pivot or playing as an eight, as one of two dual eights in a 4-3-3 in front of a number six. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see him get reps in the spot consistently that he is playing with the U.S. men's national team. It just, I honestly don't let myself think about that, really, because it was never the case at Schalke, like you mentioned. And realistically, it's probably never going to be the case for as long as he's at Juventus. So it kind of feels like this is the Weston McKenney reality that we're in. And it's not a bad reality. It's just not quite as good as it could be. But I always feel like I'm being too greedy if I try to imagine and wish for that better reality. It just doesn't feel like that it could ever happen. And I feel like I'm getting my hopes up. Well, then I, I will say the final thing for me would just be from that clip that you sent that like, 
sometimes like John O'Shea was like he played goalie for Manchester United in one game when he had to, but also I think could do a lot of things very serviceably well and could shoot and could pass and could cross and could win headers. But there's a a level of skill that Weston McKinney has at times that I think it's easy to overlook or it's easy to forget about. And that just little in the moment, that transitional flick that like gets them out of pressure, but plays the other team into pressure and is just so connective, but fluid. That is a reminder of how good he can be on the ball. And I don't think that will go away. So even if he doesn't get to do a ton of that centrally or doesn't get to grow into a set hard and firm position, and he may well, it's early days, but even if he doesn't, I think he will still have that flair to his game that will make him a special player and will make him stand out. So I'm not as worried about him as maybe I was when some of these rumors started popping up more and more. We'll see how it all plays out. But for right now, I feel very happy to have Weston McKinney in this national team and playing for Juve. Same Z's. All right. Um, then uh, another American. I'm going to talk about him more briefly because I feel like we'll talk about him a lot more when we get to the U.S. national team roster conversation is Tyler Adams uh, playing for RB Leipzig uh, as the holding midfielder this weekend in a 1-0 loss to Wolfsburg. Uh, another loss for Leipzig, but again, this is a Leipzig team that had a lot of change from last season to this one, and I think are very much still figuring things out. And there are similarities to the system, so it's not like it's a, a wholesale change, it's a wholly new entity. But even if you have a pressing system, the coach leaves and a new manager comes in who also wants to have a pressing system, it's just going to be little differences and little things you have to learn. And I saw a lot of that in this game, of because uh, I watched the game and then I went back and watched Tyler Adams. There were lots of just little moments of disconnect, uh, like disconnects and player thinking that it was going to be a run in behind and they went for that ball, but it was actually the player checking two. And then a player they thought was going to be wide, but instead moved centrally. And there was some of that arguing that you expect to see, but it was also just a lot of conversation, sometimes animated, but a lot of just discussion of what was supposed to be happening. And I think that stood out to me a bit because that to me is a team that is trying to figure it out as opposed to being annoyed that they haven't yet figured it out. And that's a big difference when you have a new manager coming in. If you have the players working on figuring out the system and learning it, that to me says there's a plan in place that the team is trying to execute. The players have an interest in figuring it out and a willingness to learn. And so Let's hold off on being worried about Jesse Marsh and Leipzig until maybe a month or two into the season. But for Tyler Adams, I, like, we don't need to worry about him. It's just the case now that when I watch him, like, I almost think we don't need, short of him doing really big things, we sort of know what we're going to get from him from game to game. And watching his clips, I, I kind of struggled to come up with things to say because it is exactly what everybody has come to expect from Tyler Adams. He's patrolling the midfield. He is aggressively stepping. He's tracking runs. He is uh, winning the ball. He's making passes. He's drawing fouls. He's conceding some fouls too, but that's what happens when you're playing with that intensity. But it really is just sort of becoming his game, and that's exciting to see given that we didn't always get to see him start, and when we did last season, it was sometimes in different positions. And so for him to just have this spot and seem to have this very trusted role with Leipzig makes me very, very happy. I got surprisingly little flack for saying that I don't think Adams would have been the perfect player for Manchester United as that mm -hmm. number six. But man, every time I watch Tyler Adams, I I think I might be wrong, right? I'm not saying mm -hmm. I, I still believe what I said, right? And I still, my, yeah. my opinion hasn't changed in the last couple of days. But 
Every time I watch Adams, he looks cleaner and crisper on the ball yep. than I remember. I, I'm going to be so zeroed in. And if I forget to do this, Taylor, I need you to remind me. I'm going to be so zeroed in on Tyler Adams' passing ability over these next three games for the U.S. men's national team. Whenever he's on the field, I want to watch to see what he's doing on the ball. Because you sent me a clip, Taylor, where Adams gets on the ball. He's in his own half. Leipzig are in their own half. The ball comes into him. He turns so confidently. He's not under a lot of pressure, but he looks so smooth on the ball. And and that's been the case every time I've watched him this season. He was a he was a really good passer against Stuttgart earlier in the year for Leipzig in that first win for Jesse Marsh, the only win so far. I I'm curious because to me, and my eyes tell me, I don't know if I'm remembering wrong, but my eyes tell me that Adams has improved on the ball. And that is a huge development for him. That's a huge development for Leipzig. And it's a really, really big development for the U.S. men's national team. That has me excited. And and I would say I don't know if it would have stood out to me so much had I not watched Gianluca Busio before him. And again, that feels like a burn. It's not meant to be, but it's just you watch the inconsistencies and the heavy touch of the underweighted pass. And when you have nine good passes, but then one under hit or one over hit or just one poorly controlled first touch, those still stand out. Whereas with Tyler Adams, it stands out that you don't see that as much. And to to your point, Joe, the clip that I sent you, it's not like he's under a crazy amount of pressure and he turns out of that and then threads a needle. It's just simple but effective it's receiving the ball he's checking behind his shoulder he's checking to see where the defenders are as the ball is being passed to him he opens up he checks again he plays the ball forward he splits two defenders it's like a good 25 or 30 yard pass into Forsberg Forsberg goes for a first time ball and that doesn't come off so nothing comes of the move but it's that just quick turn play forward keep the ball moving everybody step that I I think is what is making him such a critical part of this team. And it's that vocal everybody step that is the other thing that I noticed, and that's the other clip I sent Joe. There's a moment when Wolfsburg do pretty easily pass their way through Leipzig because Nkunku is either too wide or Haidara is too narrow but or too central. But either way, there's too big of a gap. Uh, Wolfsburg attack right through it, and the two of them are having a conversation. It ends up, I think, being put out for a corner. Tyler Adams has to cover ground, make a play, and as soon as it's out of bounds, he turns and has words with those two. And that stood out to me, because that maybe that's a thing he's always done at different times, and I just haven't noticed it, but to see him turn and chew two two teammates out and these aren't new guys these aren't 18 year olds who've just joined the club they were there last season they're veteran players they've been there and so for him to have that level of like confidence and control to let these veterans know like that's not good enough it's got to be better in a way that is demanding and like y'all know better than this don't do it again it just it's another wrinkle to his game it's another aspect of things that I don't feel like we've seen as much from him that I very much welcome seeing this time around I love the vocal nature of that clip. I also love that Adams immediately recognized what the issue was, right? I love that he saw, maybe this is an obvious thing for a soccer player at this level. Maybe it's not. I don't know. I've never been a soccer player at that level. But he sees very quickly where the breakdown was. Haidara couldn't get pressure to the ball. Nkunku, I think, was a little bit too high. Couldn't drop in to, to cut off a passing angle. And he immediately goes and talks to those guys and yep. says, that can't happen. You you know what the issue was. I know what the issue was. I just love how quickly he spotted the problem and then went to go and Dude, make sure that it doesn't happen again. What he reminds me of, and I, I shudder at the possibility that this is uh, too dated of a reference for Joe, but he reminds <laughs> me a little bit of uh, 
Clippy is, I believe, what we we all chose to call him, the Microsoft Word paperclip that would always pop up and ask you questions. Like, (laughs) that's what Tyler Adams is to me because he is everywhere. He pops up in random places all the time. He asks, like, is that what you meant to do? Is that what you wanted to do? But just in this game, he is always mobile he's always sweeping up he's always covering he it just he's all over the place in a very good way and yeah in that, in that mind he's inescapable you can't get away from him when a defender or when an attacker tries to get into a good shooting position and score and instead he kind of like sweeps in there at the last second pokes the ball away and then starts a counterattack. i expect him to turn and be like did you want to start a counter or did you want to <laughs> score a goal there is that what you were trying to do like I, I yeah i want him to talk trash the way i assume clippy did and tyler adams is now microsoft word that's what we're going with joe yeah clippy's a world-renowned trash talker there we um, go. that is there we go. that's the one thing i know about clippy <laughs> outside of his appearance taylor that's that's brilliant i try i try my friend uh joe we've got one more american uh from this weekend to be discussed who are we talking about next Conrad De La Fuente, folks, started, had an mm-hmm. assist for Marseille in their 3-1 win over San Etienne in Liga on Saturday. Conrad is shaping up to be a more important part of World Cup qualification for the U.S. than I thought he was going to be. And that's because Tim Weah is out with an injury at this point. We talked about him last week, and he played last week, so not this past weekend, but the weekend before for Lille, and now is out with some sort of injury. And I haven't seen – I saw two to four weeks out there somewhere. I'm not sure what the timeline is going to be. I don't know how reliable those reports are with the injury he's dealing with. But there's no Weah at this point for this window for the U.S. Christian Pulisic is in camp with the U.S. men's national team right now. We don't know if he's going to travel from Nashville to El Salvador so barring any unforeseen circumstances, that leaves Gio Reyna, Brendan Aronson, and Conrad De La Fuente as the three default wingers that we know are ready to play. Toss Christian Roldan into that group as well because we could see him come off the bench and play on the right wing just like we did in the Gold Cup. But Conrad now is is moving his way up the depth chart. So I think it's important for him to have a good window. That's a very obvious statement. But it's great that he's having the season so far that he's been having with Marseille. In this game, he was good. Again, he's the left wing back. Of sorts, in Jorge Sampali's setup, it's so fluid that it almost feels too restrictive to call him a left wing back. He's the left wing, he's the width provider on the left wing. That's why I want to say it. He stays really, really wide, even when the ball's on the weak side, when it's on the right side for Marseille. He stays really wide defensively. In this game, he actually wasn't a wing back. He was more of a, a left-sided midfielder. So that's probably a more accurate way to describe it. Marseille defended in a 4-4-2 in this game. So... He was doing a few different jobs. The assist that he has isn't any incredible bit of creative play, but he's staying wide and he crashes the box as Marseille play down the right side. He gets on the ball after two defenders try to take it away and then just drops it back to Guendouzi, who scores in the 23rd minute. It's a nice moment, but nothing nothing too crazy. I think Conrad is ready for this window. I think the playing time that he's been getting in Liga is only going to do good things for his confidence and for his form heading into this window. I don't know exactly how Berhalter is going to use him. How many minutes is he going to get? Is he going to be wide on the left? Is he going to be inside more in half space like he was in that one cap he had against Wales back in November 2020? There's a lot of questions I have around Conrad right now, but I'm feeling better and better about him being a more important part of this U.S. team every time I see him for Marseille. So two things there. One of them, this is a bit random, but we have... A light switch downstairs, it's like one of the, the two for light switches. One uh, turns on the lights to the stairs going up. One of the lights turns on the stairs to the like the living room. I have lived in my house for five years now. I will never fully trust which one of those does which thing. And I always have to be like, oh, right, it's that one that does that. And I say that to then say, 
every time I watch Marseille, I'm like, all right, Matteo Guendouzi. I forgot about him. Like, I forget about him every time. And then I see him play for Marseille. I think I've watched him three straight weeks now. And every time I'm like, oh, yeah, mini David Luiz. Right. So that's one. Thank you for that reminder, Joe. The second thing that I will say thank you for is Conrad De La Fuente Fuente as the left side width provider is the best way I have seen or heard to describe what he does for Marseille. Because you're right, it is not one thing or two things or even three things. It tends to be a weird combination of a bunch of stuff, but fundamentally it's stay wide, give us width, like pull people out of position, make things happen. And I really like that, but I also really like everything I'm seeing from him with Marseille. And I can't tell if this is just because I wanted it to be a good week for him heading into the camp, but like the clips you sent, the moments that I saw... It it seems like he is just fully blooded into that team and knows what's being asked of him, knows how to execute what Jorge Sampaoli is asking. And then even if the moments don't come off, like in one of the clips you sent, the ball that goes out for a goal kick, it's still just making runs that I don't think he makes for Barcelona. And that's obviously a different level at a different time in his life. But there's just a a switched onness to the way he's playing right now that even if it doesn't seem like the pass is there, even if it doesn't seem like it's a chance can come from a run he's making, he's still making that run. He's still putting in that effort. He's still trying stuff. And we always want players on the national team, especially attacking players who will just try stuff when it needs to be tried. And he has a lot of that about his game right now. Yeah, he's trying stuff in the attack defensively. He's more active than I expected him to be. This is my first chance to really dig into how much work is he putting in defensively? How does he pressure the ball? What is he doing? What's his job? And I came away suitably impressed with the amount of pressure he was putting on the ball, how quickly he was ready to counterpress after losing the ball himself or after a teammate lost the ball. That was really good from Conrad in this game. And I thought thought that was a, a very impressive defensive showing from him. And you mentioned, Taylor, his movement off the ball. I think Berhalter is going to be so excited to work with Conrad in this window because of how active Conrad De La Fuente is when he's off the ball. He's not just standing around. He's ready to make those runs that Berhalter loves in behind the back line to provide a little bit of depth to the U.S.'s attack, give them more dimension. That's what Jordan Angeli calls it. It, it just it adds another layer to the attack when you have players stretching the line as an outlet. It either gets them free in behind the back line or, or their space in front of the line because they've stretched the back line. Only good things can come of that when you're making those runs in the right moment. And Conrad does that stuff. The only thing, and this is where I'll end on Conrad, the only thing that I think I really want to see him work on is he has a little bit of the Gio Reyna ball-hogging tendency. And sometimes you need that in a player who has a really high potential to have a high ceiling. You're going to have to ride that out as a younger player. But there are times in this game, there have been times in previous games for Marseille, certainly for Barcelona and the U.S. in the U.S. youth national teams, where Conrad's just holding on to the ball too long. That has somewhat decreased, but there are still moments in this game where that stuff is happening. And I think in order for him to take the next step and become a more well-rounded cog in this Marseille machine, he's going to need to give up the ball just a little bit faster. So I'm watching for that as the season progresses. If you put Conrad De La Fuente and Gio Reyna in like a tight space with one ball, is that does that just end up like a, as a fight to the death? Do they just end up screaming at each other? How do you think that plays out? Well, I think Serginho Dest pops out of the woodwork and they just have a brawl <laughs> for the ball. And at some point, there's only one person left standing and they just juggle until they die. Okay, perfect. I like that fun. I like that, Joe. I also like that I, I once speculated that maybe we could make this a 45-minute episode. That's hilarious. Sometimes you learn. Sometimes talk you win. Some... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I guess we should take uh, one more break uh, to hear from today's sponsors. Then we will be back to talk El Salvador and the U.S. men's national team. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome back, listeners. Hello, Joe. Joe is still here. We are going to talk qualifying. The time has come, Joe Lowry. Uh, In reverse order, on September 8th, we've got Honduras v. USA. On September 5th, we've got USA-Canada. But Thursday evening, September 2nd, we've got El Salvador, USA, 10.05 p.m. It's on Paramount+. Plus. We've got the start of qualifying Joe, we're going to start by looking at El Salvador. Uh, what can you tell us about how El Salvador want to play or how we think they will play against the USA? I think I think they're going to go for it in a lot of ways. Under Hugo mm-hmm. Perez, they've become a bit more expansive in how they play. They tried to take the game to Mexico in moments. They tried to take the game to Qatar, who is a team that also can play this expansive kind of soccer. I mean, they, they beat Mexico. Uh, sorry, they didn't beat Mexico. They beat Guatemala 2-0 in the group stage of the Gold Cup. They beat Trinidad and Tobago 2-0 in the group stage. Then they lost to Mexico 1-0 in that dead rubber game as the final group stage game. But they played well in that game. They lost 3-2 to Qatar. They, they almost mounted a comeback in the quarterfinals of the Gold Cup. This team can play, and they do play. They, they'll defend in a 4-4-2 block at times. That's typically their default shape, but they'll step up and press. Some, they pressed Mexico. They're not afraid of teams, and I think at home, they're going to be willing to spread the field a little bit more. They push a lot of numbers forward in possession. It's a fluid shape. Often, it's a 4-4-2. They recently played a game against Costa Rica where it looked a little bit different than that in a non-FIFA window, but... It doesn't matter so much necessarily for our purposes. I don't think what the exact possession shape is because it is so fluid. Alex Roldan, as an example, Christian Roldan's brother, he plays for El Salvador. He's a right wing back for the Sounders. He's played right back for El Salvador. He's also played in central midfield for El Salvador. But you don't even see him in central midfield sometimes because he's rotating and moving into so many different spaces. He is everywhere, as a lot of these El Salvador players are This is a fun team, and Taylor, I'd be excited for whoever the first opponent was for this U.S. men's national team in World Cup qualifying, but I'm even more excited. I'm looking forward to this game even more because El Salvador just play fun soccer, man. I hadn't really thought about that. That's a really good point, Joe, because it's a way, so you've sort of got mitigating circumstances if it's not a comprehensive victory or if things don't go perfectly. There is that sort of, yeah, it's a way in CONCACAF and World Cup qualifying that's always a challenge. But then it is an El Salvador team that I don't mean this to be discourteous. It's just you look at where those players play and the level they're playing at, and and you would expect the U.S. to have the talent to get the result. So there is something to be said for like playing away against a team that you feel like you should beat, but then that that team... They could always be very defensive. That's always a possibility when you're playing a team in World Cup qualifying that they could sit deep, try to frustrate and hit on the break, and maybe they will do that. But this does feel like an El Salvador team that will try to punch the USA and try to hit them. And I won't be surprised, especially going back to that game I mentioned earlier, when they did. They they scored a goal in the 16th minute, and the crowd 
just overtook the game. I think the, it finishes 2-2 in the end and the U.S. pull goals back, but the U.S. was shell-shocked for most of that first half because of that goal because El Salvador went at them and the crowd backed them up with that level of intensity. And I won't be surprised if El Salvador tried to do the same thing in this game. Also won't be surprised if they do the bunker defense at times. But I think that it's going to be a tricky game for the U.S., at least in those opening minutes, to kind of first off figure out what exactly they're doing. Are they being aggressive? Are they being fluid? Are they sitting deeper? But then also how do you navigate that, not leave yourself exposed, but not let them dictate the way the game is going to be played? It's a lot of wrinkles, but that's what makes it, I think, a really interesting first game. It is a lot of wrinkles. And I think maybe the most likely wrinkle, like we're talking about, is that El Salvador try to punch the U.S. in the mouth. They do push players forward. And that could play into the U.S.'s hands really well, right? If El Salvador have, they're in that 4-4-2, maybe one of the eights is pushed up higher and and the wing backs are, the, the outside backs are forward. There's opportunities for the U.S. to counter into that space. There's opportunities for the U.S. to play vertically, to find their wingers making those Conrad esque runs in behind. That's how Qatar scored their first goal in the Gold Cup quarterfinals. Is they, they took advantage of the space that El Salvador left them in behind in transition. And Qatar got on the board early. Then they scored another goal quickly after, and they were up 2-0. And that was the game in a lot of ways. The game was almost over at that point. Not that El Salvador didn't fight. But there is a reality in which a very similar situation plays out for the U.S. men's national team on Thursday. It's not going to be an easy game like we've been talking about throughout this episode at various times. But... I think the styles could actually work out in the U.S.'s favor in this one. Joe, that goal when like El Salvador were maybe committed too far forward, was that committed too far forward in possession and then they lost yeah. the ball and got hit on the break? Or was that them applying pressure high up the field? Yeah, I believe I, I'd have to okay. go back and watch, but I'm 95% sure they were in possession with numbers forward and just got exposed. And there were similar moments to that one in the Mexico game. And so the U.S. has maybe still not the player for player quality that Mexico does, although that's a debate that I don't really think we need to get into. Still, the U.S. has quality to expose teams on the break in, in El Salvador, like we've mentioned, doesn't have the same quality that Mexico does or even that a, a number of other teams in CONCACAF do. So there are, there are going to be chances for the U.S. to break into that space and it could really pay off for them. Yeah, because I, I think uh, I watched a decent amount of that Costa Rica game, that friendly you mentioned. And in that game, their attacking shape, El Salvador's attacking shape was basically their front three were were pretty spread. So your left winger on the touchline, your right winger on the touchline, your center forward central, not surprisingly. But then two of the midfielders were step of the central midfielders would step really, really, really high. And it was almost like the front three were supposed to push the defense back and spread them out. And then those central two were supposed to kind of control possession, keep the ball moving and and probe for opportunities. And then what they were doing against Costa Rica, at least, is because of that spread and those numbers committed, both of the fullbacks moved more central. And you almost had a very spread, like it was maybe like the left back, 20 yards, the holding midfielder, 20 yards, the right back. But that seemed to be the way they were trying to prevent a rapid counter through the middle, but still have numbers forward. The obvious point there is then you've got a ton of space between those, the kind of front five and that midfield three, but you also have a ton of opportunities out wide. And so I think if you do see El Salvador aggressive in their possession or even aggressive in trying to win the ball off the United States high up the pitch, if the U.S. can be calm and keep the ball moving and play their way out of it, as soon as you bypass that that initial press or as soon as you're able to find 
a player in a little bit of space, that is where I think there is a lot of opportunity to then turn and have the the kind of snowball go down that hill and get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think there will be gaps to be exploited. There will be open space to be found. So the U.S. being calm in those opening 15 minutes and basically keeping the ball, keeping it moving and implementing their game, imposing their game would be a better way to put it, I think will go a long way towards controlling the game from start to finish. If the U.S. keep the ball and limit their turnovers, especially in buildup, I think they win this game. And there's a number of different other ways they could win this game. There's a lot of ways to win a soccer game. But that alone would go a long way because there is so much space, especially when El Salvador step high. It was worse against Costa Rica than I saw at the Gold Cup, and that's somewhat understandable because it wasn't the full squad for El Salvador against Costa Rica because it's outside of the FIFA windows. But there's there's space. There was space in the Gold Cup. If the U.S. can play through and break the press, if El Salvador choose to press, and I think they will, at least in moments, that is a big opportunity for the U.S. It could also go El Salvador's way, though. If if Tyler Adams isn't on his game at, as the six, or if Acosta's playing that spot, whoever, the U.S. have got to be careful, but they can break this press. And I think that could be a, a real asset for them. And then when we look at like individual players for El Salvador, you mentioned Alex Roldan can play two different roles and has played there. So I think will be interesting if he's playing right back or central midfield. And Joe, I, I would lean on you to ask like what you think maybe those two positions mean for him if he's playing a fullback versus central midfield. But I'm not even sure that's as important as just pointing out that he could be central. But if he's not, it will probably be Narciso Oriana. I, I, I think that's how you say that one. Um, he tends to be the number six if it's not Alex Roldan. And then it tends to be Darwin Saren to his right as one of those number eights who tends to be the one who will drop in alongside. And if it does look like a 4-2-3-1, it's usually Saren and Oriana or Roldan. And that leaves Marvin uh, Monterosa as the number 10, who then sometimes if they are defending in that 4-4-2, steps out and joins usually Joaquin Rivas as the, the kind of two more advanced attacking options, the ones kind of applying that initial pressure or that initial engagement. So that's the rough shape I had for them. Joe, any disagreement there or anything else you wanted to add to the way we expect El Salvador to line up and play? Just two quick things. Mm. One, I'm not sure that Darwin Seren will play. Yep. We don't really know. He he suffered a knee injury in the first half of the Houston Dynamos game against Is that Minnesota how I'm United. To say it? Seren, not Seren. I think so. I think there's okay. an accent. I'm, like I'm not it. entirely sure. But Seren it he is. he may or may not be involved in this game. We don't know. If not, that's a pretty big loss for El Salvador. The other thing I wanted to mention is Josh Perez. Hugo Perez's nephew, yes. a player that a lot of folks in the US men's national team fandom circle are familiar with from his time at Fiorentina, his time, you know, being the next one of the next big things. He played for LAFC some. He was just over in Spain playing in the lower divisions there. Now recently signed in the last few days, signed for the Miami FC, which is just the Ohio State of the USL championship. Signed for the Miami FC. Uh, and is is going to be playing in USL for the rest of this season. He's skillful with both feet, most often plays that right mid spot, um, but he can drive inside. He can start a little narrower. He is a dangerous attacking player. He's not someone that the U.S. can forget about, and so he's someone that I'm certainly going to be watching on Thursday. And I think all of that to say, like the things I was saying about uh, Gianluca Busio, where like he doesn't maybe have the the physicality right now to handle the midfield and maybe the like the tidiness on the ball at the same time El Salvador do on occasion at least in what I saw from them that they can they can do a very high tempo quick passing sort of play but also at the same time 
I saw a number of moments, especially in that Costa Rica game, where it's like they're passing and also winning a 50-50 at the same time. But then it's like a guy will shoulder, like, like, like weather a shoulder challenge to pass the ball to a teammate who will then also body somebody while receiving it and then playing it with a second touch. And so they can sort of do both of those things. And I think, again, that makes it a really interesting matchup for the U.S. Because, again, they may be very defensive, but they can also be good in possession. They can probe for weaknesses. They can commit numbers forward, but that can leave space. And so I think there are going to be opportunities and adjustments, and it's just going to be a pretty captivating game, which I feel like means we're setting ourselves up for a nil-nil draw. I hope (laughs) that's not the case. Joe, let's talk about how the U.S. can make sure that this isn't a nil-nil draw. We've talked about El Salvador. We're assuming a back four. We're assuming committing numbers up. We're assuming there'll be some pressing. I am of the mindset that with all that said, we might see a back three for the United States. It seems like it would put the U.S. in a stronger position from the start. That is my opinion, at least. I mean, it makes sense, right? With the back three, you have a natural numerical advantage against the front two in that 4-4-2 for El Salvador. So if they are pressing, or even if the U.S. is just trying to break them down, they can they can play outside of the front two for El Salvador. They can play into those channels, into the half spaces. I think we could absolutely see that. We're at the point in the Berhalter era, I think, where... I'm never surprised if it's a 4-3-3. I'm never surprised if it's that 3-4-3 or the 3-4-2-1 shape. It's kind of semantics. That's the difference between those. Berhalter has built both of those shapes up to the point where I'm I'm not really disappointed if it's one or the other. I think it's going to depend on how he plans to rotate in possession. Where does he want players moving into different spaces? How does he plan on managing minutes and rotating from one game to the next? Those are questions that we really can't answer. But the 3-4-3, I think, I think makes a lot of sense. I wouldn't be shocked if we saw that at all. And and the the primary reason why I would like to see it, because as we've said many times, formations are a lot of times like the easy pundit shorthand way of talking about a, a team, whereas coaches might not use that. They might be more about like your responsibility when the ball is here, but when it's here, you're in a different spot. Like all that to say that a back three and a back four with the way the U.S. tends to play is not wholly dissimilar because oftentimes we would see that number six drop either between the two center backs or drop and become a left center back or right center back and then you still have that back three the reason why I would like to see it from the jump is that when we've seen it starting with the back three in the past it's because the U.S. knows they want to be more aggressive they want to play on the front foot and sometimes when you have that number six dropping in between the center backs or or slowing it down passing it to a center back and then he moves into a more defensive position you have to move into that back three shape to then build out. Whereas when they start in that back three, you're starting in that back three. It's it's one step removed. And I think in the past, we've seen that when the U.S. was trying to be aggressive and make their opponent uncomfortable and against a team that will have two two players forward but can oftentimes commit too many numbers and be exposed, I think having like basically coverage there and numbers there to clog the middle, but also pass their way through, I think puts the U.S. in a stronger position. I'm not going to be frustrated if we don't see it, but I think it makes a lot of sense, at least for the way El Salvador want to step and press versus what uh, the U.S. want to do from the beginning. And there's also six center backs on this roster. So (laughs) it kind of feels like it's in the cards at some point. You could almost toss any combination of those center back. Okay, not any combination. I'd be okay with it. But there's a lot of different ways that you could set up the center back core, whether it's two or three, that I think would make plenty of sense and allow guys to then play again versus Canada, which is probably the hardest game of this window. It is the hardest game of this window. It'd be harder if it was away. But still, I I just... 
I think we're going to see a number of different shapes at different times in any one game. And I think we will see Baralta swap back and forth between the back four and the back three, even just across these three games. So what else, Joe, would you like to see or what do you... I don't know, because sometimes we build our lineup from, like, what do we think Berhalter will do versus what do we, do we want him to do? Maybe we could build our starting 11. But are there other players that you think could put the U.S. in a better position or that you just want to see play in this game? I want to see Matt Turner, man. I think he is the best goalkeeper in this group. I think he's the best U.S. goalkeeper available right now. I don't know if we'll see him. It sounded like Berhalter last week when the roster dropped was at least open to that being a competition. We'll find out whether or not it is in a week or so once these games have have really been underway and we've gotten to see a bigger sample size. Turner is the best shot stopper in this group. And so having him is a big asset relative to Stefan or Horvath. So I I really want to see Matt Turner. I'd like to see John Brooks if possible. Um, I'd understand maybe resting him for this game to then play the next two. But man, that, that, that approach kind of scares me. Like not starting with your best 11 in this game. It makes sense because you have to play the long game or at least the medium game in these World Cup qualifying compressed windows. But it still scares me. Man, I think you want to start with as many of the first choice guys as you can. And Brooks is maybe the most important player in this team. If not, he's in the top three or top five. So I'd like to see him and I'd like to see Adams as well. Adams and Reyna, those are both guys that we've watched a lot of and I think will play a huge role for this team this window and beyond. So those are those are four of the guys that I think are going to be key and I hope we get to see them on Thursday. All right, Joe, I'm going to put you on the spot then. I want to try to build two different lineups uh, and we're going to say it's like 80% what we think Burhalter will do, 20% what we would like to see him do. That's roughly the combination And we're going to start with the back four. Let's say it is the kind of conventional 4-3-3 that we've seen from the U.S. before. Uh, I'm going to assume that whether it's a back three or back four, you have Matt Turner in goal. Yes. Yes, I do. And the joke's on you, Taylor, because I already built my lineups before we started. They're in my notes, so I'm ready for you. All right. What's that back four look like (laughs) then, Joe? So in the back four shape, I've got Turner, and then I've got Dest at right back. I've got uh, Miles Robinson and John Brooks as my two center backs. And then I've got Anthony Robinson as the left back. The fullbacks are a bit of a wild card. I feel more confident about the Robinson-Brooks pairing in the middle than I do about Destin Robinson. It could be Bellow and Yedlin. It wouldn't shock me just because of that rotation factor. But that's my back four, and I think it's very possible that we see that on Thursday. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, for for folks who may not have heard our episode or, or seen the press conference quotes, Burhalter did talk about how there will have to be rotation but every single one of these games is being treated as we have to get a result. So I don't think... I say that to then say basically to myself because I was like, well, maybe like against Canada, we want John Brooks to definitely play or we want this certain player here. So maybe they won't go with their strongest possible 11. But if you're Greg Berhalter and you want to make a statement about World Cup qualifying, I feel like you're going to go with your strongest possible team. And I think that back four is pretty much that because I'm with you that fullbacks are a little bit up in the air. It could be Yedlin on the right. It could be Dest on the left. It could be Dest on the right and Robinson on the left. Maybe it's Tim Ream, uh, but that feels more like a back three type thing. So regardless, I think that back four makes a lot of sense. And I have a lot of faith in John Brooks and Miles Robinson uh, to be our center backs, especially with Matt Turner behind them. Uh, The midfield Joe, I'm going to take a shot and say it is Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, and probably Sebastian Legette. Two out of the three. And ah. this is this is a big question mark for me. I don't know who that third central midfielder is going to be. I've got Adams and McKinney for sure. I've got Kellen Acosta as one of the eights. I know we saw him more as a six at the Gold Cup. But because you're playing away in CONCACAF, I think there might be a little bit of value, a little bit of extra value 
with using Acosta as an 8 next to McKennie in front of Adams versus using Leggett. Acosta can cover more ground. He's maybe not as clean in tight spaces, but I don't know that there's a dramatic drop-off in terms of offensive contribution between those two guys. So I, I have Acosta as that third central midfielder just because of the ground he can cover relative to Leggett. I honestly hadn't really thought about that. I think I just had Acosta as the backup number six in my notes, but you're right. That that does feel like a thing Berhalter might want to do, especially with like even maybe starting Weston McKinney more on the left side where it tends to be more of a conventional number 10 and then having Acosta be the one who will drop it alongside Tyler Adams if they want to sort of a flat two, a double pivot central midfield. That could be Acosta and Adams with McKinney ahead of them. And then that allows your front three to just be very aggressive in their attack. That that does make sense. I think Leggett was in there for me just because he tends to be in there for Greg Berhalter. Sure. Yeah, um, I don't know if that's the best argument for why he should be there. I do think that they would look pretty interesting with, say, Christian Pulisic there, maybe even Gio Reyna there. It seems like Berhalter wants to use them as his wide attackers. I do think if push came to shove and we needed midfield creativity, there is depth, at least with this roster, to have Pulisic Arena play centrally and then still have very good talent out wide. But I'm with you that it feels like it will be Legette or Acosta, and you may have talked me into Kellen Acosta starting this game. So that's an interesting one, Joe. Well played there. What about your front three? I'm building this, and I built this earlier today, as Mm -hmm. a Christian Pulisic-less roster. So I don't have Pulisic involved in this eleven. If he's in, I have him in over Brendan Aronson. So my front three, just real quick. Reyna on the right, Aronson on the left, Sargent up top. No way, like we mentioned. I don't know if Pulisic will be involved. I'd be, I'd guess that he won't be, but again, I don't know anything. So if he is, Aronson's going to the bench, Pulisic's in the starting 11 if he's ready to go. But that's my front three without him. Reyna on the right, Aronson on the left, Sargent in the middle. And Pulisic did clear COVID protocols, so is training. The question then becomes, has he had enough training? Is he fit enough to start and play all three of these games? I don't I don't know, nor do I feel like me speculating would be in any way useful. I will just reiterate that I am sad that we do not have Timothy Weah, who is out due to injury, but I'm excited to have Christian Pulisic play any minutes in this game. And honestly, I really am excited to see Brendan Aronson, who I, I think it would be start, if not Pulisic, because... Brandon Aronson is a Philly boy, <laughs> and I don't know if he's, like, from Philly itself. Maybe he's from Metro Philly. I don't know. But we've seen him sort of, I don't know, just he's got the attitude. He's got a little bit of that swagger, too. And I think away in CONCACAF, you want somebody who isn't going to back down, who isn't going to be overawed by the moment. And he's still very young. He could still be sort of shocked in moments and sh- sort of, like, uh, awestruck in moments. But generally speaking, I think the minute he gets a tackle that's a little too aggressive, you're going to see that like, oh, we're doing this? All right, let's see how this goes. Like, I want that level of almost that Clint Dempsey, like, oh, you hit me? Well, then I will hit hit you back several times. Like, that's the vibe that I think Brendan Aronson brings to this team and then obviously has the technical ability to back it up. So if it's not Pulisic, I am more than okay with it being Brendan Aronson. And and Rain uh, Aronson, excuse me, is from Jersey, so uh, I think that fits ah, your go. point even better, even better, Taylor, than the Philly. Yeah. He's Philly and Jersey rolled into Combined. one ball of of anger. There we go, perfect. <laughs> the only the only change, Taylor, I have from my four three three lineup to my three four three lineup because they're not that different, right? The shapes aren't that different. It's just adding a center back and taking away a central midfielder. The only change I have Sands in as my center center back, and I have that third central midfielder who, in my lineup, was Acosta. It could be legit. It could be rolled on. Even we don't know. But I'm dropping that third central midfielder. I'm leaving Adams and McKenney then as a double pivot. 
and I'm adding Sands into the back line. So the fullbacks just push up. Actually, their job doesn't really change. It changes defensively. But now I've added Sands into the back line next to Brooks and Robinson. The fullbacks are the same. The front three is the same. I just moved that midfielder back into the back line. Yeah, you saved us some time with that one, Joe. That, <laughs> that is the one where I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Tim Ream in there with a the back three because to me at that point it's not requiring a ton of pace and maybe Miles Robinson is the one you rely on to be the pacey center back. Maybe that's John Brooks too and Tim Ream is there to be the veteran presence who's been there before who can do a number of different things because he does seem to be a player that Burhalter trusts and has, I'm going to assume, gained that trust by being a very coachable, very receptive player. So maybe it's it's Tim Ream, but I think also we saw enough from James Sands at the Gold Cup to justify being that center center back, and it gives the U.S. a different look. So I like that as well. Do you still then have it being Anthony Robinson and Serginho Dest? Do you, do you see any experimentation there? Uh, maybe. I have the same questions regardless of the shape. I don't. The fullbacks are the spots that I feel the least confident about Which just is because is it the best yeah. environment to play Dest? I, he's the starter clearly at one of those spots. But we, he hasn't been all that good recently either for the U.S. men's national team. So my questions are there. It just doesn't change. The questions are the same regardless of the 4-3-3 or the 3-4-3. So, Joe, this is where I, I, I tend to – like I'm a believer in like media people covering these games do start to like post photos of players who are standing out. And for some reason, I tend to to put weight on that. So, for example, the players that are being used to hype this one that I can see seem to be John Brooks and Weston McKinney. And I see a lot of Anthony Robinson. And maybe that's just random photos. Maybe that's just like he happens to be standing in the right place at the right time. But for some reason, that tends to be a thing that I feel like is indicative of who will be starting or who is getting attention, either because they're training really, really well or maybe other things. But... All that to say, it's a random thing. It's not that scientific, but I won't be surprised if it's Anthony Robinson in a back three or a back four uh, starting on that left-hand side. Hey, it's it's almost September. September could be Anthony Robinson season. I don't know. Maybe go. it is. Maybe it's not. <laughs> we'll find out, Taylor. So, Joe, like, obviously we would both like to get a win. Final thing, or maybe the final thing. We'll see how much longer we go. But what are the things you would like to see from this game aside from a win? Hmm. I was going to say win and then turn it back right. to you. I, this I will is, buy you some time. I'll buy you well, some no, time no, no, I, if you'd like. Okay. I can do this. I can do this. Just, I think it's important to state there's a lot of moments in soccer and in a national team cycle where process is more important than results. This is not one of those moments. Those moments ended uh, as soon as the Gold Cup was over. This is the time to win. And we're going to talk about and critique things that don't go well within the framework of the results still being the most important thing. We're still going to analyze some of that stuff. But yeah, this is this is winning time. And if that doesn't happen, that's a problem. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to be hitting the red button after one game, but still. So that that aside, I want to see the U.S., like I said earlier, I want to see them confident on the ball. I want to see them take care of the ball and break through El Salvador's press when they do press, break through Canada's press when they do press, break through Honduras. I want to see them look effective at breaking down teams in a low block. I don't know how much we'll see El Salvador do that, but Honduras certainly will. I want to see them contain you know, Canada's star attacking players in that game as much as anybody really can do that. It's time to see these players shine, and I think this the stage is set for that to happen. It's going to be a slightly different challenge in each game, but for this El Salvador game, all the things we've talked about, this this is a team that the U.S. can can beat. I'm hesitant to say should beat because of the, the context surrounding it, but really they should, and now it's just a matter of whether or not that happens. It's always it's always a tight, a tight rope to walk. We'll go that way. Uh, to, to say, like, 
they should win because you don't you don't want it to come across as you're saying like something arrogant like oh we got this no big deal it's El Salvador we should destroy them but it's also realistic to to talk about El Salvador as El Salvador presently exists and not as though they are uh I don't know, who are the reigning world champions right now <laughs> like as though they're 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 France or yeah whoever whomever it might be like you're being realistic in the way we're discussing them and I think that's fair and I'm with you that I think the U.S. should at the very least be hoping to come away from this with a draw if they want to go the Bruce Arena route. I don't love saying that out loud, but the idea of you get a draw away, you get your wins at home, that's enough points to qualify. I would much rather they go out and make a statement and get a result. And in an ideal world, and this is a thing that over the next couple of days I'm going to try to go back and look at uh, actually watch some of the games from the past, but also just go back and look at my notes and come up with some the evolutions of the team, some of the patterns we've seen, some of the ways that they've changed the way they're playing and how they've evolved to then watch this team play and see if we can see stuff that's been building, that's been developing, relationships that have formed, patterns of play that have kind of uh, come to fruition over the year, over the years rather. And so we can, and I would like for this game to be a sort of coming together of all of the things that have happened to this point to show that, yeah, it's all been building towards this. And now to your point, Joe, there there can't be any excuses. This isn't, you know, we learned some lessons and we wanted to play out of the back to see if we could. You can still learn lessons. Even if you lose, you're going to learn lessons. But I, this is games that need to be won, results that need to be got. And, I, and I'm very much hopeful and confident that things will go well. And if they're not, then I'm going to be sad and probably yell a bunch, Joe. <laughs> that seems fair. Um, right. We can get all the yelling out on Thursday night or Friday okay. morning, huh? Sounds good. Sounds good. Yes. Well, we will be back to review the USA versus El Salvador in great detail. Uh, between then and now, we will also have a Lister Question show with the four co-hosts. And then I think also a Soccer 101 episode. We've got an Allocation Disorder episode coming this week with Paul and Sam, who are both covering the U.S. They will be in El Salvador. It's going to be a rowdy time for them. Uh, we've got lots of good content, Joe, this week. All very fun. All very exciting. Anything else to be added before we call this one quits? I don't think so. My knee's bouncing up and down right now because yeah, I am so excited. I, I, I just can't wait. I can't wait. Taylor, thanks for having me, man. This is always a good time. Yeah, buddy. Thanks for being here. I agree. Listeners, thank you all very much for joining us, and we will talk to you all again very soon. Very soon.